This week, Facebook is accused of using a double justice system against celebrities and politicians. They also find out that Instagram is deteriorating teenagers' mental health, and California Governor Gavin Newsom beat the recall attempt on Tuesday. What does this mean for Democrats in the 2022 midterms? My name's Noah Huey, and this is Under the Stars. Welcome to another week. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. It's a pleasure to have you. Um, before we begin, I'd like to remind you to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-U-G-H-U-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. Also, if you'd like, you can support the show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. Make sure to check it out. Thanks so much. Our first piece of news is Facebook is found to have been using a double justice system for celebrities and politicians after a scathing uh, Wall Street Journal report. This is from Fox News. Facebook has responded to a blistering Wall Street Journal report claiming the social media giant gives millions of elites special treatment when it comes to removing content that violates the network's rules. While the company denies having, quote, two systems of justice, end quote, it admits there's room for improvement when it comes to the enforcement of its own policies. The journal obtained internal documents detailing Facebook's own assessment of its ex-check policy, which reportedly grants favoritism to more than 5.8 million high-profile users such as celebrities, politicians, and certain organizations. These, those whitelisted accounts not only get a second review whenever their posts are flagged for a violation, according to the newspaper, but are granted a certain level of immunity from punishment. One internal review of ex-check members, quote, unlike the rest of the com- our community, these people can violate our standards without any consequences, said of ex-check members, excuse me. In response to the report, Facebook said its ex-check program is no secret, but admitted it is imperfect. Facebook spokesman Andy Stone took to Twitter to react to the journal's story, first posting to a blog post from 2018 where Facebook defended itself from another critical report on its policing. That post admits Facebook grants a cross-check to high-profile accounts and like those of celebrities. Quote, as we said in 2018, cross-check simply means that some content from certain pages or profiles is given a second layer of review to make sure we've applied our policies correctly, Stone wrote, citing the earlier post before claiming, there aren't two systems adjusted, it's an attempted safeguard against mistakes. In the end, at the center of the story is Facebook's own analysis that we need to improve the program, Stone went to say. We know our enforcement is not perfect, and there are trade-offs between speed and accuracy. He concluded the WSJ piece repeatedly cites Facebook's own documents pointing to the need for changes that are in fact already underway at the company. We have new teams, new resources, and an overhaul of the process that is existing that is an existing work stream at Facebook. When reached by Fox Business, Stone declined to show what changes to Facebook's X-Check program are being considered. Um, at, at the end of the day, and I've, I've only read pieces of this report because I've been incredibly busy this week, but from what I've read of this report and from what I've read of um, people's, I guess, reaction to it, obviously the right politically is going to use this as a as a kind of talking point given that we're so close to 2022 there are going to be so many politicians that are just going to be blatantly using fear-mongering and nonsense um, to perpetrate the ideological delusion that empowering them aka voting for them is the only way to stop big government and big tech <laughs> um, and and they're going to paint this out as as big tech in action now of course it's it's obvious to, to admit that there are that uh, tech companies have a certain level of immunity that needs to be reassessed, um, given that that immunity was given to them at a time in which we did not really suspect them to become so large. But um, I, I think that it's it's fair to say that that this is not as much as the same thing as that as it is just Facebook as a company kind of, you know playing favoritism to politicians and celebrities and such, but at the same time, one has to admit that you would want to double-check a politician or a celebrity's account when a, when a violation is flagged rather than 
Billy Bob Joe down the street simply because if that happens to be false, if, if whatever information is being flagged happens to be a misstatement, a miscalculation of any kind, or, or their account was hacked or other such things, if you administer punishment to them um, with the same kind of standards you would have on me, for example, well, then maybe you're liable to kind of be attacked by that person to, to kind of be pointed at and say you did not properly vet to make sure you did everything correctly. And that, that kind of brings up a, a question, I suppose you could say, of whether or not pol politicians and celebrities deserve that kind of immunity. Um, not necessarily immunity, but um, special almost favoritism simply because of the system, that is, simply because of the fact that they... Um, could come at you, but it's a very, I mean, from a business standpoint, it's a very real threat. From, from Facebook's standpoint, I could totally see how this system exists to ensure that you know you're doing everything correctly to ensure that if, to ensure that nothing goes wrong in, on your end, that, that, because if something does go wrong, it's very plausible that someone with the kind of money and pro, and, and presence a politician or a celebrity may have could go after you. And, and from a business standpoint, that's the last thing you want is a ton of lawsuits or, or slanderous attacks and other such things by politicians and celebrities and high profile um, users of your platform. Whereas you kind of know that someone like me is not necessarily going to do the same thing. Now, you know, people on Facebook all the time are posting about how they're being silenced and yada, 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 or how something, their, their profiles taking down their things, so on and so on. But um, I think the issue lies in that this may the system as it exists now may be more of a um, kind of a business decision. We're, we're, they're kind of protecting themselves to ensure that nothing goes after them. The question that then arises is: Is that ethical in any way? Is that kind of plank favoritism to the elites of our society? And I think that that's a very fair question to ask. My my only issue is I'm not really. I'm not one to play this game of class versus class. I don't believe in this class war nonsense. Um, I totally understand it. Um, it makes perfect sense. But at the same time, being angry about it and, and making it a class versus class thing doesn't solve the problem. It, it creates um, disillusionment in, uh, in lower classes and it creates um, authoritarianism in, in higher classes. And the only way to really overcome the issue, I think, is to discuss it as rational adults, which naturally doesn't happen. But we're getting there, I think. I think if we, if we work together, we'll get to that point. And so I, I totally see the question of, uh, is this a kind of favoritism to the elites thing? And that's more of a philosophical question that I'd be more than happy to answer, but I, I'm, I don't necessarily know if that's something that people want me to dedicate so much to. T time to if that if that makes sense I don't know maybe I do if you do listen to the podcast on Apple on Apple Podcasts or something like that or even just watch it on YouTube feel free to comment or leave a review and say yeah I want you to go into like your philosophy arguments that just means the show will probably be a lot, be a lot longer than it is usually but again I, I totally see the argument and I think it's it's fair to um, try and understand it's just a matter of really what do you prioritize and I, I again Listen, if Facebook says they're fixing it, I'll believe them. I'll give them the benefit of that doubt because I have no information. I have no reason otherwise to believe that they that they aren't. Um, because it just wouldn't be good for business, tr quite truthfully. So I would just wait. and I'd wait this one out and, and keep an eye on it and just see what they're doing. Stepping away from the world of politics for a moment, which is something I basically never do on this podcast... Uh, I believe this is in a similar, if not the same, internal report that was being done on Facebook. Finds out, turns out Facebook shows that their platform, Instagram specifically, not only is deteriorating teenage mental health, it's actually becoming a cause of suicide. Let, let's read into the And this being Suicide Prevention Month, I thought it was, if, it, it was a necessity to, to talk about this. So let's go here. Facebook's internal research shows that teen users' mental health is negatively impacted by using the company's photo and video sharing app Instagram, according to a new report. So this isn't just like certain effects of using it. The very, by proxy of the fact that teenagers are using Instagram is deteriorating their teen users' mental health. 
quote, 32% of teen girls said they when they felt bad about their bodies, Instagram made them feel worse, a Facebook internal document reviewed by the Wall Street Journal said. Quote, comparisons on Instagram can change how young women view and describe themselves, end quote. Those findings were consistent across the last several years of internal research, according to the report. In 2019, a Facebook internal presentation viewed by the Wall Street Journal said of Instagram, we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. Another presentation highlighted even more troubling finding. A small percentage of British and American teen Instagram users said they started thinking suicidal thoughts due to the service. Instagram is far more popular with teens than Facebook's main social network, and the service's massive user base skews young. Over 40% of Instagram users are under 22, according to documents reviewed by the Wall Street Journal. Young users are so critical to Instagram's success that Facebook is currently working on a version of the service for children. Quote, we have identified youth works as a priority for Instagram and have added it to our H1 priority list, Instagram Vice President of Product um, Vishal Shah said in an internal memo viewed by BuzzFeed News. Quote, we will be building a new youth pillar within the community project group to focus on two things, accelerating our integrity and privacy work to ensure the safest possible experience for teens, and B, building a better, building a version of Instagram that allows people under the age of 13 to safely use Instagram for the first time, he said. When reached for comment, Facebook representatives pointed to a blog post that appeared to confirm the veracity of the Wall Street Journal's report. While the story focuses on unlimited set of findings and casts them in a negative light, we stand by this research, the Post said. It demonstrates our commitment to understanding complex and difficult issues young people may struggle with and informs all the work we do to help those experiencing these issues. Moreover, the blog post said it is research, its research found that social media services like Facebook and Instagram aren't, quote, inherently good or bad for people, and what seems to matter most is how people use social media and the state of mind when they use it, end quote. Um... While I definitely think that that is certainly true, that final statement there, I also believe that Instagram is trying to save its hide. Because at the end of the day, while there are social media platforms and while they're here for people and to help people and, and to kind of be of service of the people, at the same time, they're also a business. And from a capitalist standpoint, you can totally understand why they can't just say, we let, we cause people to, to develop suicidal thoughts, um... And, and girls to feel like they're not, that, that they don't um, look good and just leave it at that. That doesn't make sense in a business standpoint. So again, Facebook is making a business position here and trying to protect their asset being teenagers. But what this highlights to me is kind of something that everyone kind of knows, but we don't, there's no real, we don't know it in that same way. And it's that the fact that, quite frankly, social media, specifically Instagram in this case, is not good for you. What social media does, especially in a political sense, is it reinforces everything you should not reinforce. It takes everything bad about you and, and, and highlights it and magnifies it. And in a political sense, this creates echo chambers. In a social sense, this kind of drains your energy and it turns you into this miniature celebrity that doesn't need that kind of, that kind of connection. And, and ultimately, what it does not do is it doesn't teach people moderation. The service, in order to make money, in order to be used needs people to be addicted to it. There was a fantastic, I think it was a TED Talk I watched years ago now, on social media use, on, on the fact that using it can be so negative. And it broke it down that it's good to spend even just 10 minutes a day not viewing it. And I think that's very true. And that's something I often have an issue with. Sometimes I'll have free time. And instead of perhaps studying or reading, you know, I recently... Excuse me. I recently got a new book that I'm trying to read or, or, or something of that nature. Instead, I'm on Instagram or I'm on uh, Snapchat, which are the only two account um, social medias I use. I'm considering deleting my Snapchat. It's kind of useless. Um, what I find is that it's not just the fact that you enshrine yourself in communities that either reaffirm your delusions or just constantly beat you down. 
in many senses, it quite literally destroys your ability to not need this. And I see that on a daily basis, because um, I'm still high school, I see that on a daily basis at school with all the kids. There's a policy that says to put your phones away. Now, not all teachers enforce this policy, which that's up to their discretion as far as I'm concerned. But when they're asked to, it's very, very hard to do it. Doing so, putting, getting rid of your phone, is, is almost like it becomes like an event. And it, it's from the business standpoint, it, it's not a problem. But from a mental health standpoint, it's a terrible problem. And especially being in, I think it's Suicide Prevention Month is what September is specifically. I think that's the name. That's kind of, that's a huge problem with it. Um, it's a huge issue that pops up. Um, and I think that Facebook should take initiatives like these for teenagers who are younger than 13, who are 13 and up or younger than 13 or however it works to have a safer platform to be on. I think they totally should do that. Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, all these, um, platforms and their company, their parent companies need to take action to make sure they aren't part of the problem because right now they are, they definitely are. And it's, it's disheartening. Um, that's really, all I can say about that, but on the issue of suicide, uh, prevention month, I actually, I wrote a speech not long ago that I've been meaning to record. So instead of recording it, I'm just going to use this moment to, um, to read it. Th this is some words I wrote on suicide prevention month, a couple, about a week ago, actually. So if it's all right with you, I'm going to read this now and um, hopefully provide some kind of insight, some kind of inspiration, if that makes any sense. Um, just because it's, this is something I, I care about quite a lot and I think people should hear it. Um, Suffering is the definition of the human experience, yet among such a normal occurrence, we still make a way to advocate for the end of the drastic effect it has on some. That is the impact of an especial suffering that many go through in total silence. However, nothing more jarring or painful can happen than for that silence to be interrupted by the sound of death. Death is the, the agent that, for some, acts as the answer to the question of life meaning, life's meaning, deplenishing any there ever was to have. Our voices and values are, in the scheme of the universe, a blip. However, while some say we should disregard such an acknowledgement, I disagree. The meaning in our life spawns from its impermanence. The beauty of the universe, no matter its origin at all, is exactly as we see it. Beautiful. And you are a part of that beauty. It does not matter if you serve a god or yourself or nothing at all. It does not matter what you look like, where you come from, or what you believe. Those things, compared to the vast beauty of the moment, is inherently idle, are inherently idle. We have created artificial meaning in everything we do, but perhaps, for a moment, we could let go of all of those benign things. Human responsibilities, though worthy of our daily excursions, are not grander than the scale and power of life. Through life, we discover that beauty and purpose can be derived from simply existing. By simply existing, we fulfill the greatest purpose of all, experience. Through existence, we experience the beauty and grandiose of life's creations, the other people of life, and each other's interpretation of its meaning. While through the tireless efforts of the human world to force us to forget about such treasures of consciousness, we can still let go for a moment and appreciate the intricate and gorgeousness of existence, both by the hands of the universe and by the hands of humanity. Your time here is not over. The suffering you have endured is not how your story ends. There is no guarantee of any good thing in life, rather that life will simply continue. And because of that, there is opportunity. It is true. Yesterday and today have been preoccupied by suffering. But there is still time to find peace tomorrow. Um, so those are some words I thought I would say on Suicide Prevention Month. And I know it's a little informal just to open it up during the podcast, but I think it'd be, it's, it'd be nice to hear on the podcast as well as I'll, I'll cut it out and I'll make it its own video over the weekend. Um, but it's super important to me that everyone recognizes that um, you can evaluate the meaning of life on, on various many different levels. 
but sometimes people do that and, and they suddenly find it life void of meaning. And when you, if you were to ask me the question, which I know this is a deep question for Suicide Prevention Month, but I think it plays a part in it. If you ask me on the, on the question of the meaning of life, I would say there is no inherent meaning because we create it. It is born of what we choose to create the meaning from. And for the people out there that often find that there is no meaning, that, that they're empty, for whatever reason or another, um, all I can say to you is that perhaps from that meaningless, you can create the meaning of your life. I'm not going to say it's easy or that it's, it's going to happen quickly. It won't, but it's definitely worth following because the end result, when you choose to create the meaning you wish to find and, and, and pursue in life, is often the most rewarding rather than trying to pick one of the ones predestined for you. Um, uh, life is not predestined. There is no predetermined def um, end goal. And uh, when you realize that, you kind of become freed. You, you see the potential and the things that can happen in life. And I know that while agents such as Instagram and social media and other such things become a social plague um, and, and affect the way we view ourselves and our worth as people. Um, we are all endowed by our creator or by creation itself with uh, inalienable rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And I think that last one is the most important in, in this specific case because just because you haven't found happiness yet or it hasn't been granted to you does not mean you don't deserve to pursue it. Um, quite literally, it is your right to pursue that happiness. And uh, if, you, if you don't take the opportunity to do so, um, then there will be quite a lot you'll miss out on. Moving from that and going back into the world of politics. Yes, I'm going to say it like this way. Going to, back to the world of politics, California held its recall election Tuesday. Tuesday was the 14th, correct? I know it's it right, but I have to see it. Yes, Tuesday was the 14th. California held its recall election. There were many candidates running, such as uh, Caitlyn Jenner. Larry Elder joined last minute. There was a candidate I, was, I supported, um, and that was uh, Major Williams. But in overwhelmingness, in an overwhelming sense, I should say, Gal Gavin Newsom won the recall. And it kind of spells an, an image of what may be coming in, in the, the midterms. This is from the LA Times. California Governor Gavin Newsom survived a historic recall election Tuesday, winning a major vote of confidence during a COVID-19 pandemic that has shattered families and livelihoods and tested his ability to lead the state through the largest worldwide health crisis in modern times. The recall offered Republicans their best chance in more than a decade to take the helm of the largest state in the Union, but the effort was undercut when Gavin Newsom, when Newsom and the nation's leading Democrats, aided by visits to California by President Biden and Vice President Harris, portrayed the campaign as a to oust the governor as a, quote, life-and-death battle against Trumpism and far-right anti-vaccine activists. Conservative talk show host Larry Elder led the 46 candidates on the second question on, on the ballot, hoping to become governor, but that became meaningless after a major majority of California voters decided to keep Newsom in office. Moments after national television networks called the election for Newsom, the governor walked into the California Democratic headquarters in Sacramento to talk with reporters, foregoing a victory celebration as, in, as is commonplace in traditional campaigns. Appearing resolute, Newsom cast the rejection of the recall vote as a, in support of all those things we hold dear as Californians. His victory, he said, was a victory for science-based COVID-19 vaccines to end the pandemic and abortion rights for women, as well as economic and racial justice. Quote, I'm humbled and grateful for the millions and millions of Californians that exercise their fundamental right to vote and express themselves so overwhelmingly by rejecting the division, by rejecting the cynicism, rejecting so much of the negativity that's defined our politics in this country for over the course of so many years, Newsom said. Newsom, 53, spent part of the election day at an anti-recall rally in San Francisco Union Hall and warned supporters about the consequences to California's economy and the public health of its nearly 40 million residents if he was recalled and replaced with Elder, who had vowed to repeal the state's mask and vaccination mandates. Um, and while Newsom also criticized both Elder and former President Trump by saying Tuesday's election was rigged, calling those unfounded allegations a threat to democracy and a continuation of the big lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Trump. 
um, Elder admitted defeat. And that's kind of how that story ended. The thing is, I don't like Gavin Newsom. He's full of you-know-what. This, mo- this notion of rejecting, where is it? Rejecting so much of the negativity that's defined our politics. This guy is so tone deaf to think that he is not part of that. This is the issue with our political system. First of all, the reason Republicans lost is because they didn't go voting. Because they either felt it was not worth it or that it was in the bag somehow. Most likely because it was not worth it. And that's why so many people don't vote at all. Why do you think the, the election that has had the most votes in American history in 250 years had less than one-third of the nation vote? That's the biggest amount of Americans that voted, is less than a third. The reason that is is because people have no faith in this system, they have no faith in each other, and they don't feel like it. And so that's why Republicans lost, first and foremost. The second part of that is this nonsense of Newsom being like the savior, good, and he's noble and righteous is a total pile of bullcrap, okay? Newsom is just as divisive and destructive as his party and as his opposition. He's just an ignorant moron who thinks that since by virtue of the fact that he is a Democrat, he is moral and righteous. He is the, he is the, the stereotype. He is the example I would point to um, him or Trump as the um, op- uh, opposite, as the example of a politician completely overwhelmed by a delusion of ideological superiority, which then empowers them to use any kind of fear-mongering nonsense to make people believe that everything that possibly happens has to happen at at the helm of his and his party's power. It is completely ridiculous. That is a ludicrous accusation to make, and both sides of the aisle make it because they care not for the freedom and security of all people, but for the ideological supremacy of their party. All they care about is forcing the nation under their boot. And the thing is, they don't think that's bad. They honestly, in such a state of delusion, consider the forcing of the country under their ideological belief system a good and noble thing. So when I say this, these people aren't, like, actively trying to hurt you. They just don't care if they do. Because as far as they're concerned, if you get hurt by their policy, it's because you're evil or you're stupid. So that's what they think. They justify their power by demonizing and villainizing everyone that does not benefit or agree with their policy or culture beliefs. They do not care. So first of all, Gavin Newsom is dead wrong on that accusation and on a lot of the things he said about Republicans. However, his candidates were in fact in support of a lot of the things he said they were in support of, so I will give him full reign on that. That was 150,000% correct. Um, however, this saving democracy nonsense, none of that is true. It is another, and that's the thing. These parties rely on the American people to be stupid, to be empty headed, moronic pawns that just do whatever they're told because they're scared. And that's what we are. We are stupid if, if we don't have the courage to say that voters are stupid, the Democratic and Republican Party will continue to run this country into the ground, not caring for a single life that is affected by it. Because as far as they're concerned, so long as they win, they are doing the right thing. But that is wrong. That is dead freaking wrong. And anyone who believes that is delusional. If we as a people do not reform our intellect and do not reform our voting consciousness, we will continue to empower delusional crazy people like Gavin Newsom into thinking that everything they do is an act of moral righteousness, is, is another step in this quest for virtue-signaling awesomeness. Every single time that we do this, we empower a system that is hurting us, a system that keeps us in gridlock and destroys our ability to cohesively solve the, the problems we face with, with in-depth solutions powered by conversations we have as civil adults. That's what we do when we empower the two-party useless system and every single ideology in the, in the non-existent political spectrum as far as I'm concerned. That's what happens. Destruction, despotism, and eventually death. 
on the flip side of that, there is still hope every single day that an America still exists, that it can be saved. And by saved, I don't mean one party wins. I mean it's saved by people growing the freak up. By growing up and becoming real adults, not stupid fake adults that are really just emotionally unstable children in an old person's body. We can create an enlightenment in this country, the likes of which it has literally never seen. But we can't do that by actively choosing to be stupid. That's the most obvious statement, I hope, in the entire world. But I, I, I mean this in the most serious tone I can possibly share with you. The two-party system doesn't work. It must and can be reformed. And it must be an, a non-party system. Everyone deserves to try and have a say in the government. And we have to empower the... Let me think. If it was 80 million in the presidential election last year... That would mean... Oh, I'm terrible at math. I'm just going to do it on my phone. Listen, I'm terrible at math, all right? Don't blame... You, we all know you're not that great at math either, okay? Minus. The other 220 million Americans that didn't vote in the presidential election last year, we need to get them out. And we don't need to tell them what party they should go with. We should let them decide what the, what's best for them. And ultimately, on a national scale, we need to encourage that we elect leaders that don't just let, that don't just protect us, but protect all of us. That's the issue with the two-party system and with any party system at all, because they don't believe the other side deserves to have the freedoms and securities it has. They view those freedoms and securities as illegitimate, because they demonize everything and everyone that disagrees with them. We need to become a more enlightened country in the sense that we empower each other to, yes, I want to have power or at least a say in government so that I can protect my freedom and my security and that of everyone in the same party in the same tribe as me. But I also want to ensure that the other side doesn't lose their freedom and security. That's not what America does now, by the way. If anyone tells you that's what we do, it's absolutely not. Our system is designed by proxy to create a system of, of a, a democracy of tyrants. That's what America is. We are a republic of despots who view each other's freedom as illegitimate because we view each other as, as evil. We create, uh, let, me, let, me think, let me think about this. We create fairy tale tyrants that don't actually exist and claim that everyone that does not give me and my ideology power is empowering the tyrant. And the two-party system, to keep itself in power, also perpetrates what I call the partisan paradox, in which they convince voters through fear-mongering and manipulation that if you don't vote for at least me or the direct party I oppose, all you're doing is basically voting for me or the direct party I oppose. First of all, that's the most ridiculously stupid thing I have ever heard in my life. That's literally not how voting works. If 330 million Americans... No, let me, let me do this. If, let's say in an election, 100 million... Yeah, a hundred million voters, a third of the nation votes in a presidential election. If 50 million Americans vote for a third party independent or unaffiliated candidate, and then 20 million vote for a Republican, and the last, uh, let me think about this, 20, <laughs> can't do math, 20, 30, 40, 50, and the other yeah, and the other 30 million vote for the Democrat. So 30 million voted for the Democrat, 20 million voted for the Republican, and 50 million voted for the unaffiliated, independent, whatever, third party. That guy wins. But the thing is, because we are so stupid as voters, and we're told, well, if you vote for anyone but us, you're basically just voting for us, we don't vote for anyone else. So only because we think voting for someone else won't work, we don't do it. But it does. It's just about getting over that mental hill, which is easy for anyone who doesn't have the emotional and intellectual range of a toddler, but that's not voters in America. Unfortunately, that's not like I'm like celebrating the stupidity of Americans. That's sad. We should try and fix that instead of just saying, yeah, you're just being mean. Because I know people will say that, likely. They're going to come at me and say I'm bullying American voters. I'm not. I'm saying, let's get over that hill. Let's work together. 
Because, hey, that's me too. I believe plenty of lies and stuff all the time, I'm told. Because I want to believe that everyone has the best interests of the nation, meaning the freedom and security of all of the, the American people, whether they're in their party or not, at hand. I wanted to believe that about Joe Biden, but I, the, the more and more he's in office, the less and less I believe that, the more and more I was like, oh, I was right to begin with. We need to get over that hill and defeat ideas like the partisan paradox so that we can build a country that we can all be proud of, Democrat, Republican, or neither. But we can't do that with our current political system. And kind of the effect of our current political system is exemplified in this California recall. The rhetoric, the way it was treated, the way people reacted to it, is an exemplary kind of model of our political system and everything that's wrong with it. Now, what does this spell out for the 22 midterms? I don't think it spells out anything, really. I think Democrats are going to use this as an example that, you know, everyone wants Democrats, Democrat, Democrat, Democrat. But at the end of the day, I don't necessarily believe that this has much of a say in what happens in the midterms, given that one, it's a gubernatorial election and, and two, um, it's a different kind of different kind of candidates. However, it also does kind of I don't I don't think it's as, as exemplary as what a midterm election will look like. Um, for the pure fact that um, I feel like the rhetoric would be much more ramped up, especially with members of Congress that are currently resigning. We, we, there's a real fight that's about to go down because Democrats and Republicans in the last 10 years alone, in the last seven, six years, Democrats and Republicans have become more delusional than they already were for the last 240 years. So that's kind of how I'm looking at the situation with uh, the California recall. Let me get a drink of water here real quick. Um, a quick reminder, if you'd like to follow my Instagram at Huey Noah, that's at H-U-G-H-E-Y-N-O-A-H, that's at Huey Noah. Um, and if you're interested, you can support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. It'd be greatly appreciated. Um, and uh, I just appreciate it. Thanks. Our next piece of news, Mark Milley is being... Um, Mark Milley, General Milley, is being told to resign and being told he should be arrested for treason, specifically by Donald Trump, for a phone call he made in the last few months of the former president's presidency. In the afternoon hours of Tuesday, following reports that then-President Donald Trump's top military advisor had formulated secret plans in case the commander-in-chief went quote-unquote rogue after the January 6th riot, the ex-president picked up the phone and rang up several close associates and TV-prone political allies. According to two people familiar with the matter, the twice-impeached former president was sounding testy and had a simple request. He wanted his prominent supporters to go on television and in public this week to declare that General Mark Milley should be arrested for treason. They followed his orders as various MAGA faithful pundits and Trumpy candidates, including Ohio U.S. Senate candidate Josh Mendel, Trump-aligned TPUSA frontman Charlie Kirk, and several former Trump officials dutifully echoed... Excuse me, I'm going to check my... the screws on my seat. They feel a little loose. Oh, that's not a screw. I can't find it. There it is. It's good. Anyway, what was I saying? Uh, several former Trump officials dutifully echoed the treason charge on social media. And by Tuesday evening, the twice-impeached former U.S. president was on a Newsmax show co-hosted by his former White House using the T-word. Oh, that was weird. I've had so many calls today saying that's treason, Trump told Newsmax hosts Sean Spicer and Lindsay Keith. Later in the evening, the former president released a written statement through his office, calling him DA's General Mark Milley, adding that if the report is accurate, I assume he would be tried for treason, in all caps, and that he would have been dealing with his Chinese counterpart behind the president's back and telling China that he would be giving them the notifications of an attack. If this is true, General Milley should be, would be a traitor of this country and should be tried for treason immediately. If true, he should be fired and tried for treason Im immediately again. Fox News star and informal Trump advisor Sean Hannity claimed later on Tuesday night alongside an on-air graphic that blared Benedict Milley. Um... No, it's just saying about the book that this came from, which I'm not really interested in talking about. 
listen, Trump is a manipulator. That's all he ever was and that all he'll, that's all he'll ever be. He searches for power because he wants to put his ideology on top of everything like everyone else. But on top of that, he wants to put himself on top of the ideology. He wants to be king of the world, or in this case, king of America. Um, and he wants everyone and everything to glorify him the way people like Abraham Lincoln are. And he'll go to the most desperate attempts to do so. We've seen this. He's a manipulator and an opportunist who will take advantage of everything you believe and everything you're scared of to make you give him power. He does not care that he's lying 99% of the time. It doesn't matter to him. But the stuff about Mark Milley, in a legal sense, I'm pretty sure they would be technically correct that he would have to be tried for treason because of the simple fact that I don't necessarily know. Oh, that's right. I was trying to think on the issue. I, I, I've been watching about it on the news for the last two or three days. So the issue that some people are bringing up that disagree with them is the fact that it wasn't just Millie who did this. It was a lot of people in the, the, sec, the um, what is it called? The State Department. Um, a lot of people in the State Department before Millie actually have been had been calling Chinese officials and were like, no, no, we're not going to attack you, um, blah, 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 blah. The issue is with Mark Milley in general is that, <laughs> general, is that um, calling his Chinese counterpart and saying we'd warn you of an attack may be legally defined as treason. If, hmm, how do I word this? If true... Legally, yes, I suppose he would be tried for treason, and, and I guess that would make sense, because obviously you don't want to warn foreign enemies of an attack. Um, that just doesn't make any sense militarily or at all. But the issue is, it's, it's the whole problem with it that people, that Trump-publicans have with it, is that it's just the fact that it undercut his power. Something that's been massively supported and ma like been in politics basically since Dick Cheney was vice president was the Unitarian... Oh my god. The Unitarian... I think it's called the Unitarian... I'm going to double check it. The Unitarian Executive Theory. Executive Theory... Unitary executive, excuse me. The unitary executive theory, if you don't know, is a theory of the United States constitutional law, which holds that the president of the United States possesses the power to control the entire federal executive branch. It can be said that some favor a strongly unitary executive, while others favor a weakly unitary executive. The, the whole concept is that the president is all-powerful because he's all-powerful, and that the entire executive branch belongs to him. And the problem is... Republicans embrace this idea heavily. Both parties really embrace this idea heavily because when you have more power, you can enforce your ideology far more strictly than you can when there's a bureaucratic system in place. And so obviously they're going to support this. And so I think part of that plays into it. Um, but I don't know. And another issue is it's one part that, that they believe the president should just control everything, everything now and forever, which is the dumbest idea I've ever heard. But also on top of that, it's that, it's that it's Trump. If this happened to Obama or Biden, they wouldn't care. Because a lot of the things that people in politics care about, they only care about because they can use it as an opportunity to progress their ideological supremacy. Whereas in another situation... Super congested. In another situation, it wouldn't matter so much because they can't use it politically. And so ultimately, that should always be factored in, in your, into your assessment of an issue that happens in politics, in my opinion, because of the sheer fact that people are going to purposefully overinterpret things to benefit their ideology's power and supremacy. And so I think that plays a part in it. Do I think General Milley should be tried for treason? I'm trying to think about what I do know. Possibly. Um, but I also know that the only reason anyone on the right cares is because it was Trump, it threatens their ideology's power, and it threatens the leader of their ideology's power. And that's all that really matters to them. Not, not any semblance of what is legal, what is truth. It's just a matter of how can we use law to benefit us.
a USAU, I think is what they do, is what Australia is, deal is being slammed by China because we recently gave Australia nuclear submarines. That was the strangest thing I saw when I woke up this morning. Excuse me. Chinese foreign military spokesman Zhao Lijian, Lijian, Zhao Lijian, that's correct, slammed a new defense pact announced between the governments of Australia, the U.S., and the U.K. during remarks at a press conference on Thursday. Excuse me. Quote, the nuclear submarine cooperation between the U.S., U.K., and Australia has seriously undermined regional peace and stability, intensified the arms race, and undermined international non-proliferation proliferation efforts, Xiao said in a response to a question from AFP. Relevant countries should abandon the outdated Cold War zero-sum mentality and narrow-minded geopolitical perception, Xiao added. Otherwise, they will only end up shooting themselves in the foot. Xiao's comments come after the U.S. announced it would help Australia build a nuclear power sub- build nuclear power submarines using technology only ever shared with the U.K., Australia will not seek nuclear weapons as part of the agreement. The submarines will be equipped with conventional weapons. The French government also ripped the agreement because Australia simultaneously withdrew from the $66 billion deal to buy French non-nuclear submarines. The, quote, brutal, unilateral, and unpredictable decision brought back memories of dealing with the Trump administration. French Foreign Minister Jean... Oh, my God. Jean... Le... 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 Jean, that's what Jean said, told that newspaper in comments translated by the New York Times, this is not done between allies. The French embassy in Washington released its own statement commenting, condemning the move. Initially, France canceled a gala scheduled for Friday at the embassy intended to commemorate the 240th anniversary of the Battle of the Cape when the French and British uh, navies fought in the Chesapeake Bay during the Revolutionary War. In my opinion, first of all, China's response to it is stupid. It's more like a no nukes for the nukes for me, but not for the thing. Because China just doesn't want people questioning it. China is China is where the United States will be if the Republican or Democratic Party ever actually controlled all aspects of government. Okay, like they are the epitome of a country that has just enshrined itself in delusions of ideological supremacy. They want to be worshipped. They want the world to revolve around what they believe. And that's kind of what Trump believes as well. Um, I I believe that's what made him such a good negotiator with him. He could understand them better than most um, executives in the past have. And so anytime that there's a chance that they see that we don't trust them and we've got stuff to, if they decide to do something to fight back, they don't want that. So they want us to be weak. And here's the thing. One thing I believe about foreign policy is that when you treat countries like China, you have to be ready for anything. And I totally could see China if if they just suddenly go, you know what, we want to control everything, let's start firing. It's a good idea, in my opinion, to know that our allies are surrounding them with guns, kind of. That's a kind of simplified way of saying it. And I know that kind of reflects Republican sentiments of, oorah, kind of stuff, but it's I think that sentiment works. I think that sentiment works with countries like China. And for China to react this way makes total sense. It's just them being a crybaby and and going, we want to be able to kick you in the balls and not you not be able to defend yourself when we do. France's opinion on it... I I get it. I I read up on, on what they were talking about on the Trump thing, on previous whatever, but... I, I don't know. It seems like a little bit of an overreaction to me. I, maybe I'm wrong. You see, because the thing is, foreign policy is something I'm learning more and more about every day. It's the like, I know a little more about domestic policy, about like my opinions and stuff like that. Whereas foreign policy, it's a lot because it's the whole world. And so w- what little I do know, I apply in a way in doses. And I try not to um, overreact because I don't know everything. Um, which is something not very many people in politics like to say, but what I, what I feel as, as of this moment is that this is a little bit over an overreaction. Um, I don't know. It seems like an overreaction to, to be like, uh, this is like Trump. I, I just don't personally think that it's 
all that much of a big deal, and I think it's being treated far more, I don't know, in a manner that I, I not necessarily would would say makes sense. The China one I'm more upset about just because it's just China being upset that someone would be able to defend themselves if they decided to do something funny. Um, which, it does reflect Cold War sentiments. And the thing is, the Cold War never really ended. Like, people say the Cold War ended when such and such happened. And yeah, with Russia, things have been okay, but they always kind of stayed tense. And that same thing happened with China because China was backed by the Russians during the um, the Chinese Civil War. And so the Cold War never really ended for Zhao. Just like, here's a little note for you, Zhao. <laughs> uh, the Cold War never really ended. It, it just died down and it became the 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 lukewarm war. <laughs> um, or excuse me, not the lukewarm war. The, the no, yeah, the, the, Luke, the lukewarm war. Um... And so it's, it's, I don't necessarily think that comma is appropriate. Our final piece of news today, NIH documents are directly contradicting Dr. Fauci's um, gain-of-function research um, denials, in which he epically owned Senator Rand Paul, and saying, you, you, frankly, you don't know what you're talking about, but apparently neither does Anthony Fauci, um, which is highly disappointing. <laughs> Yay! So this is, from, this is from Yahoo News, actually. Newly released documents to appear to contradict Dr. Anthony Fauci's repeated claims that the NIH did not fund gain-of-function research on bat coronaviruses at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, the place that the coronavirus we suspect probably came from. The internal documents detail the work of EcoHealth Alliance, an American research nonprofit, which used NIH funding to do research at novel bat coronaviruses at the Wuhan lab. Among the documents, which were obtained by The Intercept through a Freedom of Information Act request, is a previously unpublished EcoHealth Alliance grant proposal filed with the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, which is run by Fauci. The proposal requests $3.1 million for a project titled Understand the risk of bat coronavirus emergence, which, <laughs> ironic, which involved screening around thousands of lab workers for novel bat coronaviruses. The grant was awarded for five years from 2014 to 2019 and was subsequently renewed before being suspended by the Trump administration. The proposal directs $599,000 of the total grant to the Wuhan Institute of Virology for research designed to make viruses more dangerous and or infectious, and its author acknowledged the danger associated with such work. Work. Quote, field work involves the highest risk of exposures to SARS or other COVs while working in caves with high bat density overhead and the potential for fecal dust to be inhaled, it read. After reviewing the documents, Gary Ruskin, executive director of a group pro probing COVID's origins called U.S. Rights to Know, told The Intercept that the grant was a roadmap to the high-risk research that could have led the current led to the current pandemic. Fauci has repeatedly insisted during his Senate testimony that the research being funded by the NIH at the WIV does not qualify as gain-of-function or the NIH's current definition, but critics, including Senator Rand Paul of Kentucky, have accused Fauci of playing semantic games by excluding research which makes bat coronaviruses more transmissible, the commonly accepted definition of gain-of-function from his more convenient definition. From his more convenient definition, Dr. Richard Ebright, biosafety expert and professor of chemistry and, bi and chemical biology at Rutgers University, also disputed Fauci's claims. Primarily, he has rebutted Fauci's chief declaration that the NIH has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology as demonstrably false. Ebright told National Review that the NIH-financed work at the WIV epitomizes the definition of gain-of-function research, which involves working with enhanced potential pandemic pathogen, PPP, or those pathogens, quote, resulting from the enhancement of the transmissibility and or virulence, virulence of a pathogen, end quote. In total, what does this mean? This means, ultimately this means that as reliable as Dr. Fauci can be, he's also still trying to cover his behind. Because that says a company that went to his organization and asked for his approval, and he said yes. And ultimately, he still has to cover himself there. Um, 
Here, here's another thing that Ebright said. Ebright, Professor Ebright said the Wuhan Labs program qualified as gain-of-function research because it artificially engineered novel SARS-related coronaviruses to make them more transmissible and dangerous to humans, uh, the breeding ground for an accident. And so here's the thing. This, this makes sense. You take this kind of dangerous research to, to understand the danger of a highly transmissible, transmissible virus, um, coronavirus, and you go to a lab that has been reportedly known for its inability to kind of stay clean and 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 keep tabs on itself, you could see a breakout. The smallest thing could cause a breakout. My issue is this this first of all kills the hype with Dr. Fauci that Democrats play. Once again, science has been entirely politicized and one party wants everyone to believe that they are the all-knowing gods of truth and science. Sciencey science, 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 sciencey science, science, science. They think saying science a million times suddenly makes something true. And that's exactly, trust the science. That's not how science works. Science is not the science, the science, sciencey science, science, science. That's not how it works. It's about admitting the truth. It's about asking these questions, about forming a hypothesis, about committing an experiment, so on and so on. And because I, I don't know uh, the uh, the scientific method to a T, um, which is totally my fault. But on the issue of Dr. Fauci, is he is not a god of truth and knowledge, and everything he says isn't right. And this so-called Epic, like, oh, he owns the Republican morons who don't trust science. Well, maybe science is wrong. Maybe Dr. Fauci is wrong. And this this whole censorship issue with people saying, oh, well, you should just trust everything he says as truth because he has a degree. That's not how it works. You have to be an idiot to believe that just because someone has a degree and holds a position suddenly means everything they say is reputable. You must question everything they say because they are human. No qualification a person will ever attain will ever overpower the fact that they're human. They will make mistakes. They will have ulterior motives and they will try and cover their behind if they were a part of or let happen an accident that caused a worldwide pandemic that has killed millions. Of course they're going to do that because they're human. Does this mean we need to, you know, uh, Salem witch trial Fauci and other scientists? No, it just means we need to hold them accountable, punish them if needed, and, and move on. We need to figure out what, what's going on. We need to find out who needs to be punished if needed. And we need to figure out how do we clean up the mess. Because then we can learn a lesson. But we're not going to learn a lesson here. Because politics is going to corrupt this. The Democrats are going to say Republicans are liars. Or they're going to try and ignore this news for as long as possible. And the Republicans are going to play this up as a point to get reelected. They don't care about trying to do the right thing. Because all they care about is making themselves more powerful and more prominent in our culture. They care not to try and do the right darn thing and clean up the mess that was potentially made by the, the NIH at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They don't care because they don't care about us or anything that actually has any value besides their own power. And so while there is a lesson to be learned here, potentially, no one is going to learn it because America is an ignorant, stupid country of tyrants who don't care about doing the right thing. And until we bounce back from such stupid philosophy and actually build a country of freedom and security for all and, and, and follow the, the truth of, of, um, of a situation and solve the issue and come to a cohesive solution, we aren't going to learn that lesson, which is really disappointing. Because we can, and I think will, be better than this. But it's going to take the combined effort of all of the civil adults left in this country to clean up the mess that the overgrown children in old people's bodies have made. And unfortunately, I'm beginning to file Anthony Fauci in that list of overgrown children because they're playing into the politics and into the division and into the corruption that often happens in these institutes. And it's ultimately our fault for glorifying these morons. So that's what I think of that situation. Um... And that's kind of my takeaway for this week, that, that hope exists, but it's going to be up to us to keep it alive. Um, other than that, thanks so much for listening in. It's been a pleasure having you. Uh, if you'd like, make sure to follow my Instagram. That's at Huey Noah. That's at H-E-G-H-E-Y-N-O-A-H. That's at Huey Noah. 
if you'd like, and it'd be greatly appreciated, I'd like not to throw water all over my computer, um, you can support my show through my merch and my books in the shop section of my website. Um, thank you so much if you do so. That um, It'd be great. Um, thanks so much for listening in, and uh, I'll see you next week. I-, I was slouching that last bit of the episode. I was slouching. Thanks so much for listening in, and I'll see you next week. Bye-bye.